I'm Susie Anetta, Editor-in-Chief of Design Anthology. And in this week's episode of the podcast, I'm on the line with Astrid Klein and Mark Dytham, founders of Tokyo-based architectural practice, Klein Dytham Architecture. I think I wanted to start maybe at the very beginning uh, where I believe you both met, which was at the RCA. Is that correct? Yes, that's right. Um, back in uh, 86. And uh, yes, uh, at the RCA, at the architecture and interior design course, uh, they were combined. And uh, so I came in with an interior design background and uh, Mark uh, uh, with, uh, came from uh, the arch- architecture department in Newcastle, but that's right. It, yeah, it was quite interesting the way they put the two courses together. Um, so the architects and the interior designers did the same course, and so um, the interior designers did the architectural bits, and we did and we did. So we we both had the same uh, the, the same course units. So it was interesting to see how the interior designers designed buildings. And I guess it was quite funny for the interior designers to see how the architects did, did interiors. So it was this mixed yeah, course, yeah. but it was really interesting. Yeah, it sounds like that. Yeah, Mark was really good at cheating on the interiors. He kind of drew the beds <laughs> at three quarter the size and it always looked perfect. Everything fit in beautifully uh, and nobody was the wiser. <laughs> well, all well, all real estate people draw the beds to two thirds of scale to make the rooms look bigger. It's a standard yeah, trick. It was good practice. Anyway, <laughs> I was actually going to ask you what both drew what drew you both to that school in the first place, but I guess that's probably my answer. That sounds like a really interesting combination <laughs> and a an interesting insight into sort of two parts of the same world, maybe. I think it was interesting. I mean, I was I was drawn to it because uh, a lot of you know architects I sort of um, admired came from there, and obviously there was that fight in London between the the AA and the RCA, mm. but the mm. RCA people were seemed to be a little bit more resourceful and um, ended up running quite successful practices. And um, mm. you know, it was just a, it was just an interesting place. And I think the crossover between the car designers and the fashion designers and the, you know, um, pro, uh, the, the sculptors and the artists is amazing now. And that's what was the big draw, I think. Mm. Well, as I came from the totally opposite side, I uh, uh, had the foundation court in art, a course in art and uh, then uh, switched over to interior design because I felt uh, that it was sort of a more secure future and that after all I wasn't going to be an artist uh, but since I liked installations and uh, sculpture a lot uh, along with textures materials and uh, and colors um, you know, I thought that interior design might just be you know a whole room being an installation and uh, uh, soon I figured out that uh, there's somebody else was always deci- deciding on, uh, on the windows. Uh, and <laughs> then the interior designers had to just cope with that. Uh, and so I thought, well, that's not going to happen. I think I'm going to look into uh, 
architecture as well to see who decides the windows so I can kind of control <laughs> that as well but I was uh, um, very keen that I'd go to an art school uh, art-based school rather than a, a pure architecture school uh, hence the RCA mm. um, so yeah interesting and Mark, you mentioned that there were a few people who you admired that had, had been through there. Could you tell us who a few of those might be, if you had any role? Yeah, but, well, uh, um, Nigel Coates was running, uh, had gone through there. But I think it was more to do with um, um, sort of famous car designers and uh, people like Mary Quant um, and Henry Moore, uh, people like that. They'd all sort of gone through the system. And it was just a really interesting, it was an interesting place, yeah. Um, so that was what the big the big attraction was really it was that 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 mix of different of different um uh did, did different creative industries really that was the, the big the big draw to be honest mm. and there was um again i think also the tutors there were interesting james gowan uh was t teaching there and um i really admired his uh work um when, when he was with james sterling and uh, lots of fantastic buildings and um so there was all sorts of things that were like really really sucking me to the college you know mm. and so the two of you co-founded Kleindeitham Architecture or KDA in Tokyo in 1991 but before that you had both also worked in the office of Toyo Ito is that correct that's right um we came to uh, uh Japan on a on a scholarship uh, and uh, uh, were hoping to stay as long as it lasted. But in the back of uh, especially my mind, uh, I thought that if we're going to like it here, I'd, I'd really would like to stay. And uh, so uh, eventually uh, uh, we kind of uh, visited lots of uh, many uh, uh, architects whom uh, uh, we had written to and they're all kindly uh, uh, received us. and. Uh, uh, yes, uh, through a, um, and also we met uh, Toyo Ito then, uh, who uh, uh, then led to a really nice chance encounter. Um, yeah, I mean, we we, yeah. we we both won. Astrid won the Richard Rogers Prize at the Royal College of Art, and I won. Uh, I, I grew up in a near in big new town in the UK called Milton Keynes, and I won a, a scholarship from there. And so we travelled to Japan together with, I think, five thousand pounds between us, and we had no idea. People said, you know, it's yeah, we had no idea how long we could stay on that that amount of money. And I remember orange juice. Orange juice was really expensive back then. I think it was it was ten dollars a Luxury drink. Yeah. Oh my gosh. But I think that you know most people we we both wanted to well work there, but you know most people <clears throat> had no idea. Um, whether you could or you couldn't, you know, there was no, there was no internet there. There was, uh, so, so when, when we wrote to the 10 architects that we wanted to visit or see, um, it was, uh, it was kind of difficult even to find their addresses for Toyoito or Izozaki, you know, it was a kind of, uh, it was an impossible situation only through meeting David Chipperfield and he kindly gave us some business card, a photocopy of some business cards. Did we manage oh, to wow. get addresses? Today, you just put our name in and not only does our office pick, you know, there's a picture of our office and exactly where we are, our telephone number, but those weren't like that. So it took like three months to get everybody's addresses together uh, so huh? we could visit them when, when we were in Japan. And as Astrid said, we were lucky enough to meet Toyo Ito 
and um, he just won an international project and was looking for some in, for some international a couple of international staff. Um, well, English speaking, I think. Well, it was an international project, Astrid. I think he was he was interested. Yeah. You could speak French, German, and Italian, to be honest. Right. <laughs> so, can you tell us a little bit about that experience of working with Ito Sun, and maybe you know some key takeaways from that time? Yeah, what was interesting is that uh, um, it was a very uh, uh, a flat organization in the sense that we would all sit around uh, the big meeting room and, uh, uh, you know, everybody said what they thought about uh, the project and, uh, and Ito-san would kind of uh, uh, listen to everybody and uh, ask a few questions and uh, uh, and then uh, uh, also obviously also said what he thought about the project and uh, and so it felt like uh, a, a very inclusive uh, uh, brainstorming session on what to do on how to design uh, a particular project uh, and uh, it, and so after everybody had spoken everybody would go away again and uh, and rework the project until uh, the next meeting and uh, and so it, it, it felt very much like there's this big mist cloud of lots of ideas that eventually had to condense into into the into the project um, of course Ito-san was kind of more like a, a an art director as well but uh, I think we learned a lot uh, from uh, that it that it's not a straight line that you don't come up with the idea and then there is this straight line to implementation but that it can kind of go off like with a big detour to the left only to come back and kind of go off in a totally different direction uh, and where the end product is something that you didn't expect at all um, when you when you first started the the, the project that was a key learning there that, you know, I'd, I'd come from the British school, the Richard Rogers and Norman Foster School of Design, where you would arrive on site, uh, on, you know, for the first time you go on site and you'd have this revelation and this massive idea and you would just, you, you know, you had to sort of almost decide there and then what the concept would come to you. And then you'd follow that in an absolutely straight line, like the North Star. And the more you wavered from that, uh, the weaker you were in a way. Uh, but there was this very logical approach approach to architecture. Well, that's, that's how I was educated. So it was kind of very different to me in Ito's office. And suddenly one would go off in one direction, another. I think back then, uh, you know, uh, architects tended to have their style. And uh, while as Ito-san's style yeah. was not to have one, uh, but to meander <laughs> off in all sorts of different directions, I think uh, that was, uh, that was so refreshing. Uh, it could also be very frustrating, uh, especially at uh, two or three o'clock in the morning when you would wander in and uh, say, we're going to make it differently uh, because we're gonna uh, do you it know, different. we've got it nine so hours before. Yeah. <laughs> nine hours before the, the submission. We're going to start again. <laughs> no, but I think when, when yeah, we first sounds... met Ito-san, he kindly gave us a book, you know, and we knew a couple of the projects in there, uh, Silver Heart and White U and Tower of Winds. And we assumed, when you look through the book, we assumed that all the projects were by different architects, but they were actually all by Ito-san. 
And so yeah. it was like, he don't, where, come on, where's, where's his style? But so Astrid said, um, each project yeah. um, is, um, was uh, for that, for that uh, site or for that client. And so everything was different, you know, so each project was t- t- tailor-made. But it was super interesting. I think, I think it was always exploration. Uh, and Ito-san is always very, um, he, 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 uh, he would look at architecture as a gathering of people. Uh, and uh, and the architecture would then grow from there, as opposed to building a, a, a building and then the people would kind of come to it. So he, he for him, architecture was always something very fluid uh, and very ephemeral. You know, kind of uh, uh, there in one minute and not there the next sort of. Uh, um, yeah, it's very difficult to uh, kind of grasp into words, um, and uh, it was more—it's more a feeling, I think. Yeah, I think there's—it's—it's it's very cultural. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious to know whether that was just Ito-san, or if if cultural backgrounds can help explain those very different approaches. I, I think in general, Japanese people tend to be much more poetic in a way, uh, much more sensitive um, to uh, what surrounds them. You know, it's that they don't necessarily look at the house as a shelter, but more as, a, as an environment that inspires. I mean, I'm kind of exaggerating here, but... Um, I think there is a lack of permanence here, which is uh, the way the architecture is built. Yeah. So everything in 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 Asia, especially in Japan, is built with was built with timber, and mm. so buildings had a finite lifespan, and they either burnt down, they rotted, or they were destroyed by typhoon or earthquake tsunami. There was there's no uh, where and, and and you know it's 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 post and beam and it's infill panels, whereas. You know, where I grew up in the UK, it's like they're either stone or they're brick and you build it for 100 years or 400 years. And there's 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 this way and and you cut holes in walls yeah, to make windows. You make the wall and then you cut a hole. And it's a completely different notion of architecture. And there's just, there is a definite lightness here and a, and a different mm. when when you when you're designing here, you're not building for like 100 years or 400. You're building for sort of now. And that gives it a, a kind of a lightness in the way you design and the way you think about it. But I think just in general, uh, Japanese people are, are very good at living in the moment, uh, you know, celebrating what's happening now. Uh, you know, it's, it, it, it almost feel you know, celebrating the cherry blossoms, celebrating... Uh, 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 I think everything... There, there's a celebration for so many things. And then, you know, the year ends up being just a string of celebrations. Um, so, so I think it's that ephemerality as well. You know, you kind of cherry blossoms are, are here for a week or two, uh, max. And then you move on to the next thing. Uh, I mean, every month has a holiday. Uh, so I, th- I think it's, <laughs> it's, it's much more uh, on the surface in a way. And I used to think that they're very superficial. 
uh, because, you know, they can change from one thing to the next. I mean, especially when we arrived first in Japan, you know, people would uh, dress up as punks on the weekend and then wear a business suit on the Monday, you know. <laughs> um, and uh, I said, how can you do that without conviction? And I thought they were really superficial. But in the end, I kind of uh, thought, well, hey, they're, they're having much more fun because, you know, they can be, they can enjoy, you know, dressing up on the weekend and then they, it's not, it's not a big deal to, to, to wear a business suit and then maybe the following week, a weekend uh, dress up in a different way. This whole cosplay is kind of uh, just testimony to that. You know, they have a mm. m much more fun by being light-footed in a way. Mm. That's such an interesting perspective. Um, so, you know, given that you, well, it's been 30 years, if I've got my math right, since you founded the practice, <laughs> yeah. but you've obviously been in Tokyo. We normally, in say, we normally say over 20. <laughs> okay. All right. Sorry. Well, let's be a bit more okay. generous. <laughs> over 20 years uh, since you've been there and, and obviously practicing in Tokyo and, and so ingrained in what's happening in the city. And you've already talked about how temporary and ephemeral the built environment can be. So I, I would love to have you talk about or describe maybe some of the changes in Tokyo's built environment over that period of, of time? I think uh, it used to be much more fun during the uh, uh, economic uh, bubble. Um, I think the people were much more outrageous in their designs and uh, much more open to uh, uh, building wild ideas um, and uh, but then again Japanese people being pretty much perfectionists in whatever they do uh, I think the developers over the years uh, have kind of uh, refined uh, the the building uh, the construction of buildings to such a fine T that uh, you know it's kind of the it's it's the uh, it's the best construction for the lowest cost uh, for the biggest area, and it has become a little bit monotonous. Um, so uh, yeah, I mean it's it's pretty formulaic, yeah. and and you have to remember yeah. that ninety five percent of the buildings in Japan are not built by architects; they're built by construction companies. These massive, whether it's Takanaka or Kajima or Taisei. And uh, they're huge companies. They have architects in there, but when you when you're wanting to design an office building, you know that your uh, the the uh, construction companies will come along and they'll give you uh, a, um, a, you know, a a price, um, and that pr there'll be like three prices. Well, we can do we can do it for these materials at this price with this type of tile, and we can do it with this type of cl cladding at this price. And um, you know these things get built, and they're kind of like machine built kind of thing. You know, they're not it's not really architecture. The five, the but other five really, is the architects, but they're really yeah, well they're, done, yeah. <laughs> exactly, high quality, really high quality, very appropriate. Uh, but you know, on an emotional level, I think uh, uh, a, a little bit lacking. Yeah, mm. sounds very. And, and remember that though. they also guarantee their yeah. projects for ten or twenty years, and so they, they are, they are, and they'll come and repair. If, if the roof leaks, you know, they'll come and repair them, and you know, there's a whole no system questions here. asked. Um, for building, you know, and that's, that's actually true with 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 us with our office too. Um, we have very little 
our liability, we have no legal issues. So when, when the contractor is appointed to build one of our pro projects, they take full responsibility um, for, for it and, and they will get guarantee it for 10 or 15 years. And, and that's why some of the details um, are not as extreme as we would like because the contractor's like, guys, this isn't gonna last, you know, <laughs> um, which is fantastic. So we're using their experience to help build, you know, um, great architecture. That's so interesting. Well, I think considering, you know, anyone who's not a resident or actually Japanese has probably been in the country for at least the last 12 months. It's been maybe 18 months since I was there. I'm really curious to hear about what changes have happened in the lead up to the Deer Olympics, <laughs> that whatever, whatever the current status is, um, you know, are there any recognisable changes in the cityscape that we should look forward to seeing? I mean, there's lots of fantastic stadiums they've built and uh, Kengo Kuma's National Stadium is uh, really kind of terrific. It's still penned off. We can't get near it. Um, and all of the greenery that was pl planted on it was going to look a bit thin in 2020, but it's it's, it's had a year to um, sort of gain tr traction and it's looking better. Um, but yeah, yeah this, um, uh, the, this, the city could have hosted the Olympics at any time, to be honest. I mean, there's lots of really fantastic stadiums, and it's brilliant that Kenzo Tang's Yogi Stadium, which was built for the 1964 Olympics, they've just renovated it. They didn't really need to, but they've cleaned it up and put a new, you know, put some a new roof on it. Um, so the the city was kind of ready for it, um, but it's been interesting, obviously, with COVID and the pandemic and how the city's uh, changed. I mean, we've been very, very lucky here. Um, the city's ticked over quietly. Um, the, the, the worst we had was having a sort of the, the state of emergency meant that bars closed at sort of seven o'clock in the evening and they've just extended that till nine now. But the city's ticked over fairly well and we've had you know, cases were under a thousand most days. We're down to about three or four hundred now. Um, but it is a, you know, it is, it's a clean city. People don't hug. We bow. We wear masks normally. So the masks are worn in hay fever season or in the winter, if you've got a cold, like I've got at the moment, um, if you're pushed mm -hmm. onto a train, you know, in very, so everybody's used to wearing masks. So um, it hasn't had such a big Im impact here. I mean, it's still been. Uh, you know, I, think, I think retail is suffering though. Retail is yeah, suffering. Absolutely, yeah. Um, mm. So obviously not having the, the same footfall, uh, I think it's, it's led to uh, quite a few uh, stores kind of shuttering um, and uh, yeah especially um, uh, especially fashion sector yeah on the... yeah but but again I think it it I think we look at it as pruning in a way the shops that always did well they did well anyway uh, mm. so it was the ones that weren't quite you know uh, you know a bit on the edge and uh, I think they've finally fallen off um, so it's it's not all bad. That's how I look at it. You know, it's kind of it always one door closes, uh, another opens. That's how I'd like to think of it. And it was mm. probably a good thing to happen anyway. Mm. Yeah, there's definitely some silver linings. Yeah, we do a lot of work in the hotel set sector and um, we're seeing quite a lot of strong demand there, especially at high end because people are not traveling and they've got no disposable income. Um, and instead of flying to Hawaii or, or Thailand or wherever, 
people are trying to travel in Japan. So all of the hotels in the countryside are doing extremely well, especially the higher end ones. And uh, maybe you're seeing that in Australia and in other parts of Asia Asia too, but sort of Mm. um, national tourism is doing really well. Um, So that's been uh, quite an interesting change. And we are seeing that, Mm. that we are seeing that trend where um, offices are downsizing people are spending you know spending half the week at home and then uh, a couple of days in, in in the office which was really really unheard of in japan there was no way that yeah. companies would allow you <laughs> to work at home and now that now they're like wow this is great you know uh, we're getting the same doesn't necessarily it doesn't necessarily apply to architecture offices though <laughs> <laughs> yeah we've yeah. we've really struggled trying to it, it is it is almost impossible for people to work at home we've got to get around a table just like it was in Ito-san's office and have discussions and draw on things. And, you know, that's how the office works. It's very, very horizontal. That's it. Yeah, brainstorming um, on an A, A1 drawing or looking at three-dimensional models, uh, you know, it just doesn't, it doesn't, we tried, we tried. Uh, but, uh, yeah, it, on the screen, it just doesn't look the, the same. Mm. Yeah, I've heard a number of people sort of agree with that, actually, that I think it's, you know, you can get the fundamentals done remotely, but the creative process, I think, is certainly stunted (laughs) by the lack of, yeah, collaborative um, environment, I think. Um, I want to go back to Japan just quickly and ask you, because I think maybe, Mark, it was you that said, I read a quote that you, maybe before going to Japan or the reason for you deciding to go to Japan was because it represented the future to you. And I'm curious to hear whether that's still the case for either (laughs) of you. (laughs) That's a good question (laughs) to coin a phrase. Um, yeah, it, it, I think it still represents the future. Every day, we used to say that every day we saw something which was inspiring or new. And although we're not going out and about as much, it still is the, the case. It's a very sophisticated culture. And um, just the way that the subways work, the cleanliness, um, it, it's just a very sophisticated place and everything works. And, and it, it is shocking to go back to London. It's shocking to go to New, New York um, and just uh, see how dilapidated the cities are, you know. Um, obviously, there are great parts in New York and great parts in London, but there's just here there's a consistency of, of, of quality and cleanliness. And I think that's obviously, as I said earlier, been re- reflected in, uh, the sort of low impact that COVID has had here. And so, I, you know, it really is the future, I think. And we see lots of, um, you know, just the way the convenience stores work here, the on-demand, uh, the convenience stores get five or six deliveries a day. Um, at the convenience store, you can do everything. You can pay your bills and there's just all, all of the things are there. Um, and as electronic money comes into uh, more common use i mean i don't i don't use my wallet anymore it's maybe the same mm. elsewhere I'm, it's, mm. i know it's certainly the same in, in china um mm. but yeah I, I still see it as the future to be honest <laughs> i probably in, in, in a different way yeah um it, it, it seems yes. futuristic yes. before say. it seemed mm. futuristic 30 years ago uh but it's still a great um it, it's still a great uh, model to follow i think yeah mm. i think uh building on uh on on all this you know it's it's 
we, we kind of see more the opportunity for improving now as opposed to uh, the, the sort of uh, uh, dreamlike future, uh, futuristic uh, uh, visions. Uh, you, you know, it's, 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 we, you can see, oh, this could be done better, this could be like this, and they have all the tools and means and knowledge to do it. Why don't they do it? Um, is is uh, is is more our feeling today, and uh, uh, you know, kind of Japan with its aging society, which uh, uh, you know the other developed countries will soon catch up to. Uh, it uh, we're kind of looking at it now that it could be the pioneer uh, 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 country to how to deal with all this uh, in a way. Um, yeah, I think this notion it, of an aging. The yeah, the, 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 as I was saying, the, the aging society, and also the, the country depopular. Uh, it, it's getting the, the population is getting less and less. And from this year, Japan will see a reduction in population of a million people per year. It's, it, it's peaked at one hundred and twenty wow. million, and it's going to be reducing a, a million per year. And in fact, that's why you see so many crematoriums being built because if there weren't enough crematoriums to cope with the uh, declining oh population. Gosh. I think Toyoita has designed a couple. Um, so it's how how the countries, and I think this is not, it's, this is going to be common in other places too, as, as, as countries downsize. Uh, and how do you cope with that? And how do you cope with the aging society? Mm, yeah, that's pretty extreme. Um, so we've actually just recently passed, I think, the 10-year anniversary of the devastating earthquakes that happened in the Tohoku region. We were talking about that earlier before we started recording and that you were involved with the Home for All project um, that you did on a pro bono basis. So I would love to have you talk a little bit about that and maybe also if you're actually still involved in that in any way, if there's kind of an ongoing effort that is still required or whether those skills are being uh, utilised in other projects for any other kind of disaster relief? So, yeah, we got involved with, obviously, um, 3.11 was, you know, was a really, <laughs> a really amazing moment. Um, and and, and uh, the whole country uh, stopped for three or six, six, six months. And I don't think many people really understood the scale of the disaster. You know, so, so two, three hundred kilometers of coast completely wiped away. Um, I think um, 120,000 buildings were instantly destroyed by the tsunami. Another quarter of a million so badly damaged they had to be re re replaced. And I think over a million homes were affected uh, by, the, by the tsunami. So it was a huge, huge uh, disaster. Um, the government is is super efficient here, and they've got all of these te temporary homes ready to go for an earthquake or tsunami. And so, acres and acres of these te temporary homes were built within three months, which is which is incredible when you when you think back about ha ha Haiti and the tents, which are probably still there. You know, so Japan was super efficient. There were these acres and acres of temporary homes, which people were going to live in for three to five, in fact, now ten years. And um, Toyo Ito was. Uh, thinking about what to do and what um, uh, what Im impact he could make there. And so he, he was thinking about this, these temporary homes. And in fact, there's, there's, no, there's no place for people to congregate. There's no local center. There's no sort of sense of pride. And so this Home for All initiative uh, was set up where um, he wanted to build these um, community centers within the areas of 
temp, temp, temporary housing. And that's where this project was, was born. And um, uh, we've now built uh, 16 home for alls in, in the temporary uh, housing areas. Um, and they've been really, really well received. And, um, you know, it's where o- older people can hang out with young kids uh, when, when, the, when the parents are working. Um, and they've become these really fantastic uh, community set centers that are, that are yeah, really loved. I, th- I think they're, they're sort of more a home. Uh, center sounds like a very uh, official in a way, but uh, they're, they're sort of more like living rooms. Uh, uh, where everybody can hang out uh, without having any purpose, you know, you just you just go there and uh, and uh, you meet the other people who also just simply go there and you just have a cup of tea together or you don't, uh, you know, it's especially for older people, uh, you know, they uh, rather than being lonely in their own temporary house, uh, uh, you know, they can gather together there and uh, they can uh, oversee the kids doing uh, their homework or, or maybe just uh, uh, playing and uh, basically it's just a place for interaction uh, and uh, to, to, to fight uh, grief and loneliness together as opposed to uh, you know being by yourself at home. And uh, so, so that's how this home for all came about. You can cook there, you can uh, uh, watch TV, you can read, you can listen to music. Uh, I mean, everything happens there. And so, we so set much up... so that sorry, the um, so especially older people uh, who w- had to uh, live in these uh, temporary houses, uh, they founded a new community that way they made new friendships and it's especially those older people the the older generation who doesn't want to move out of the temporary housing because it would mean uprooting themselves yet once more and you know after uh, having made all these new friendships uh, they want to stay there they want to stay together Uh, Mm. and so these home for alls have uh, have really become a, a, a very important thing so much so that although the temporary housing in places is uh, 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 has been uh, uh, how do you say uh, dismantled, uh, these home for alls some of them get uh, uh, get moved to other places so that the people can uh, continue using them. And I think as a as an architectural model, um, I think all the all the architects who are, who were involved uh, in home for all. Uh, uh, you know, it, it, it's been a big lesson that actually, you know what, any, any neighborhood should have a home for all, um, mm. disaster or not, uh, because there is no place in the city where you can just go and hang out uh, without having a purpose. You know, you, you, you always have to buy a cup of coffee uh, and, uh, you know, to, to justify your being there. Uh, but then you're not necessarily uh, um, talking to uh, the other people in the coffee shop. Uh, it's it's always like I, I don't know. So so uh, it's trying to uh, gather uh, and uh, and communicate and just be together. I think is uh, is uh, what uh, lots of architects uh, uh, learned from this. I mean this 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 sort of 
this sort of notion of, of low pressure or no pressure yeah, is really important, I think. You know, even if you go to a bar or to a coffee shop, there's a kind of a pressure there. And it was about how could you how could you develop these very simple, no pressure uh, spaces where people would want to go. And, and, and also the, the, one of the key things for the project was to give these people a sense of pride that they're, they're going to be living in these t- temporary homes, as I say, for five years or 10 to, to 10 years now. And these little, these little pieces of joy, uh, these fun, funny little bits of architecture, these, you know, uh, were, were really important uh, signs or icons within the community. But as Astrid said, I think there was lots of learning there. And in fact, there was an earthquake in Kumamoto, in fact, two big earthquakes in Kumamoto um, about five years ago. And Home for All's come together and uh, working with the local government there, um, they built another 50 Home for All's uh, in, in, in that area. And Ito-san and our group have been uh, in, involved with that, giving master planning advice, things like that, how that this can be rolled out. So it is turning mm. into quite an important model. Yeah, I can imagine. That's quite powerful. And I imagine, you know, given everything that we've been through in the last year, that, uh, you know, understanding the power and importance of community and having people around you maybe even makes us all realise even more how important those kinds of spaces are when you're going through such a traumatic experience. Yeah, and it's been interesting in, in sort of Af- African areas where the pandemic has, has, has not been too, too bad. It's because people stay in these village bubbles they don't move from village to village and, and so that that notion of having a home for all and a community bubble is kind of quite an interesting thought now which wasn't really the case when we built them but you could you could imagine this thing has a you know a radius of um a, um, a catchment area of say 500 meters or so and that's where everybody gets together but you're not spreading infection because you're, you're staying within that bubble mm, that's quite interesting well, I want to skip now to another initiative that the two of you spearheaded, but I, I don't know how well it's known that Pecha Kucha came out of um, your practice or was a you know, the brainchild of the two of you. And I think that was launched in 2003, which actually might be the year that I left Japan. Um, I, would, I would love to have you talk a little bit about why you started that and, and also why you think it's or how it's grown to become such, you know, the global phenomena that it has. That's funny. So, so we, um, uh, it's, it, yeah, so it goes back to, um, us, uh, we, we, when we set up our office, we set up in a space called Deluxe. It was an old um, our ta- ta- taxi ga- ga- garage back in the day. And it was probably Japan's first co-working space. There were six, six of us, six, six offices came together. And we had events in the space. The events got bigger and bigger. And then we opened uh, like an actual event space itself called Super Deluxe. So our, our, our original space was called Deluxe. Our second space, just event space, was Super Deluxe. We went from having four events a month in our in, in Deluxe to suddenly having a potential of 31 events. And um, after six months of running this event space, it was quite tough finding events. And so we had to invent some events. In parallel, in our office, um, on the, uh, you know, we got digital cameras. Keynote arrived on the Mac. It didn't crash like PowerPoint. Um, every Monday morning, we do a show and tell. And we still do them every Monday morning. People put um, um, images into the keynote and we go through them. 
uh, um, fairly quickly. They're set on 20 seconds and people can explain what they've seen either on a construction site or a factory visit or what they've been up to at the weekend. So we're having this show and tell in our office. So we thought to fill the dead nights, especially on Wednesdays, which always seem to be dead, dead nights once, once a month. Why don't we run a show and tell? And, uh, but you know what architects like, they tend to talk too much. So um, <laughs> we came up with this idea that you would show 20 images for 20 seconds each. So six minutes, 40 seconds. And then the next, next presenter's on. They auto forward. So there's, everybody's on, on time. And we held an event on uh, the 20th of February, 2003. We had 14 presenters. That meant that if those 14 presenters come, they'd probably all bring five friends. And so we had an instant crowd, which was, which was yeah. fantastic. And it was a big success. And then people were saying, oh, I would like to present. And, and we, we've held uh, a monthly event at Super Deluxe uh, until a couple of years ago when we went, we went on pause in Super Deluxe. But we held a monthly event. We had 160 events. And um, then what happened in 2000 and, I don't, 2005 or six, we ran it during Tokyo Design Week. And people then came and said, oh, I'd like to run this in our city. And suddenly it went to Los Angeles and then it went to Switzerland. And it spread all around the world. And then today we're in a thousand. Uh, 257 cities um, and wow. pre-pandemic we were about 120 150 events a month around the world and it's wow. all you know we don't we, we don't charge for format and that's kind of why it's still sort of spread I think um, and it's become this ubiquitous <laughs> presentation format which is quite amazing it's being used in schools and universities uh, things 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 like that yeah so that was the that was the genesis of of, 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 of it all and it's, it's very strong in in Australia, New Zealand, all around Asia, you know. Um, and obviously during the pandemic, um, this time, actually exactly this time uh, uh, last year, we went from having, as I say, over a hundred events a month. And then they sort of slumped in March. And then in April, we had no events, zero on, on the calendar. And uh, April the 9th, we held our first virtual event on, 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 on Zoom, which was a great success. And we've pivoted and we're now holding either fully um, virtual events or hybrid events. And uh, we've had 400 events uh, last year. And uh, I think we've had nearly 50 events this year. Um, so it's, it's, it's pretty interesting how it's transitioned into a digital or hi hi hybrid format. So, uh, mm. yeah, it's still going. <laughs> in fact, it's stronger it's than ever, to be honest. There's, there's more <laughs> interest in it story. because it is virtual. And we've yeah. set up some virtual, so we've built some virtual tools. We've built a thing called PK Create, Pachacha Create. And um, that allows people to upload 20 images, voice and share them uh, with the community. So, uh, and, and we're looking to build a, a mobile app now. Um, so you can do all of this uh, on your phone or iPad. So uh, yeah, <laughs> going into the next so phase. I think it uh, so it can be used by schools much easier and universities as well as uh, as well as businesses. So you want to talk a little bit yeah. about that, Mark? Um, well, just the fact that it's being it's being used um, again. We worked with the World Architecture Festival WAF, and we ran a competition last year using the PK Create uh, soft software, and so we did a competition called Isolation Transformed. We had over 600 applications. There were 300 presentations made and um, it was judged by Norman Foster. So it's pretty amazing uh, that we're at that wow. sort of level now. Um, and then in, in America, the Frank Lloyd Wright uh, Conservancy uh, have been w working with us. We've held several really large events with two and a half thousand folks 
on uh, on on online because they've really struggled because nobody's visiting the homes and they've lost all their income so they've been looking at ways to keep you know to keep the frank floyd right flame burning as 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 it were so that's been uh, that's been interesting um mm. and yeah we're working with um the the, the um, pk creates being used by monash university it's been used by harvard university so um yeah please look at the website of pachacha.com so we say pachacha that's the short ah, japanese format of right. pachacha sorry I've i should have said that before pronouncing it all of these years <laughs> i'm glad you uh, no, corrected pachacha pk but it's not Machu Picchu and it's not projector night that's, uh, that's, uh, good to know in fact it's, it's funny that lots of people at one university ahead of one university said oh, we, we really want to run that event that nobody can pronounce <laughs> so but well, it's become it's, the, the, yeah. <laughs> so yeah it's been it's good it, it's, it is amazing it is it's, it's and i think somehow the pachacha uh, the pk experience has rolled back into our work and, um, I, I, you know, we say this quite a lot that probably 50% of architecture interiors is about the actual design and materials. The other 50% is the content. It is, it is the community that goes in, in there. And I think that um, running projectors taught us a huge amount about how to grow a community, how to keep a community alive, how to keep it activated. And uh, that there. does how to get them there. And it all folds back into, um, you know, the, 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 art, the architecture of buildings. Mm. Well, I think that segues quite nicely to my last question, which is what's next? What can we look forward to <laughs> from Klein Dytham? <laughs> it's a good point at the moment. I mean, we, we are um, working overseas more and more uh, in, uh, in China, in Thailand, uh, there's, there's potential projects in America too at the moment. Um, and it's, it's, um, in some ways it's easier because people now understand that we have to do things on, uh, zoom. Um, but it's also very difficult because we can't go on site. We can't get materials. We can't look through materials. The, the two big projects we're doing in China, we get a box of DHL samples. <laughs> And you, you open it and you instantly know they're no good, <laughs> you know, oh. and then it's another two week cycle to get the next set. I, um, think, but... I think we learned a lot uh, through uh, um, this through this last year. And I think what's uh, what's really become even more apparent is that we need to, um, you know, take care and emphasize well-being in whatever environment we are. Uh, I think uh, at KDA, we always were uh, very concerned about that already, uh, mainly because when we designed projects, we kind of uh, very selfishly uh, designed them with us being uh, the customer uh, who mm -hmm. would actually go and, uh, and be at those places, whether it be an office, whether it be retail, whether it be a hotel. And I think... Uh, there was always a little bit maybe a pushback uh, uh, from the client side, mainly because of cost issues or, or uh, running maintenance, running uh, uh, cost uh, issues. Uh, but now I think they, it, it cannot be negated anymore. 
you know, environments need to be comfortable and, uh, and need to contribute, actively contribute to the well-being uh, of uh, the people who are there, especially in offices and in, in office interiors. And uh, now that hotels get more used for workations, uh, you know, that means uh, the, the, um, the hotel rooms might, will have to uh, adapt to that. So I think there is going to be a little bit of a shift in uh, what these projects look like uh, uh, in the future. Uh, how fashionable or trendy are you going to design them or are you, uh, you know, going to be more conscious of making a place that people would like to go to uh, and but but don't make it too um, how do you say um, make it more flexible in the sense that if it's a comfortable place you can use it as a shop but you equally can use it as just as a gathering place or or, or any other function uh, so I think it, the the uh, the focus of the design will be much more on on uh, on being a, a a nice interior that you'd like to be, as opposed to okay, it has to be a shop, okay, it has to be a restaurant, okay, it has to be a, a, a library. Uh, I think the places will be uh, used with all those functions as long as there are nice places where people want to be. I think mm. my, 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 my perfect uh, example for that would be, you know, pe what, what are the places that people like? I think people like greenhouses, as long as they're not too humid or too hot. Um, and, and you could have anything in a greenhouse. You would like to have breakfast there. You would like to have happy hour there. You would like to see a fashion show there. You would like to have a library in there. You would like to have uh, your hotel room in there. So I think uh, it's b because it's a bright uh, place, there are lots of plants. Uh, and, uh, you know, I've never encountered anybody who doesn't like plants. Uh, I think everybody would like to have plants. They're just worried they are not really good at uh, at keeping them alive. So, <laughs> yeah, I'm one so of those Susie, things. Susie, to answer your question, we're going to become gardeners. Is the uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, no, but that's Astrid's the absolutely yeah. Astrid's <laughs> absolutely right. But we're seeing so many. We're seeing so much much potential from this, and a potential to reconsider what an office is potential uh, uh, to reconsider what a hotel is. Um, and, um, you know, it's, it's a really interesting uh, and inspiring time, to be honest. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think it's just giving all of us an opportunity to reconsider and recalibrate many, many aspects of our lives. Um, on that note, I, I want to say thank you so much to both of you. It's been really great chatting. It's nice to hear your voices from what feels like really, really far away now from Melbourne. Um, it didn't seem so distant from Hong Kong, but um, yeah, Tokyo is definitely at the top of my list of places to get to when we can travel again. So I hope you both take care and um, yeah, yeah, come and see us soon. See what's next. <laughs> thank you very much. Thank it's been you. really nice talking much. to you, Susie. And yeah, uh, yes, come on over. <laughs> Sounds good. Thanks so much to you both. All right. We'll catch up. Okay, bye. bye, -bye. bye.